This is Masters of Dispute Resolution on PodClips. Masters of Dispute Resolution is designed to provide those involved in the mediation process with the views of the most experienced and accomplished mediators and others experienced in the process. Through our discussions, you will gain insight into how to address and overcome difficult issues and achieve more satisfying results in mediation. Your host is Len Levy, mediator and arbitrator with ADR Services, Inc., a leading alternative dispute resolution provider. Lynn litigated complex cases for more than 30 years and has been a mediator since 1998 and is a member of the National Academy of Distinguished Neutrals. He has been recognized as a super lawyer in alternative dispute resolution each year since 2014. And now your host, Lynn Levy. Thank you, Daryl. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Masters of Dispute Resolution, brought to you by Lawyers Pacific Insurance Brokerage, Inc., the National Academy of Distinguished Neutrals, and ADR Services, Inc. Uh, Today, we are going to be discussing what your mediator needs to meet your expectations. And joining me today is Alan Saylor. Uh, He is a, a good friend of mine. We've enjoyed many conversations. Uh, Alan has a very thriving practice uh, and has had as a neutral since the founding of Alan Saylor Mediation Services in January of 2003. He's, he's always enjoyed the luxury of being an independent provider of mediation services. Uh, and Alan is also a, a diplomat member of the National Academy of Distinguished Neutrals, one of our sponsors. Uh, Alan's practice uh, during his career uh, has involved the mediation of over 3,000 civil cases and disputes. His practice primarily focuses on mediation of personal injury, products liability, employment, and professional liability matters. Those who've used Alan's services attribute his ability to consistently resolve matters up to his legal analysis, his evaluative skills, and particularly his meticulous preparation and tenacity. I can attest to the fact that no one, no one prepares more than Alan for a mediation. Hi, Alan. Thank you for joining us today and uh, welcome. My pleasure, Len. Thank you for having me. Sure. Um, Look, let's get right into it. Uh, Different mediators have backgrounds that lend themselves to conducting mediations in specialty areas. Uh, You and I have mediated in a variety of areas. And uh, what role does subject matter expertise play versus familiarity with the mediation process, in your view? Um, Well, it obviously depends. But I would say that, you know, your mediator needs to be well-versed not only in the law, um, which, you know, typically if you're dealing with a personal injury case, it's, it's you know, mediators are going to know what the law is on slip and fall in motor vehicle cases. Um, but you also have to know the intricacies of how to mediate those cases. So if you're mediating a personal injury case and you don't understand liens, you don't understand negotiating liens uh, and things of that nature, you're not going to be a very effective mediator in many instances. So I think it's not only knowing the subject matter from a legal perspective, but it's also knowing, uh, you know, the things that go into driving cases uh, toward negotiation and settlement. Different mediators have different styles. Uh, I know you you tend to be very direct, 
And uh, what people see is what people get with you, Alan. I know that. Um, How important is it for those selecting a mediator to know what a mediator's style is before going into the mediation? Um, I think it's important, particularly in certain cases. So, for example, I think if you've got uh, a case where you need someone to, uh, you know, let's say you have a sexual harassment case and you need somebody in terms of the mediator to really relate to the client um, and uh, be more of a touchy-feely mediator, um, you know, that's something to, to certainly keep in mind. You should keep in mind whether or not you want a male or a female mediator in a particular case. Obviously, subject matter uh, expertise can be important in certain cases. So if somebody came to me, for example, and said, hey, I've got this really interesting trademark case, would you be willing to mediate it? I'm going to say no. <laughs> Go find somebody who specializes in trademark because that's an area where you have to know the intricacies of the law. Right. Um, so, you know, those are some of the things I think you look at. Style-wise, um, you know, I, I am very evaluative and I'm certainly not bashful in expressing my opinions during a mediation uh, when the situation calls for it. Um, and, uh, you know, some people just don't like that style. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important to find out how the mediator, uh, you know, conducts himself or herself uh, in terms of whether they're evaluative or facilitative in terms of how they approach things. How is, what is the best way for them to find out? Call the mediator. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, mediation is, uh, is a very important process these days. It's the gold standard for resolving cases. Um, and it's obviously can be a very expensive process as well, although clearly not as expensive as going to trial. Um, so, I mean, you know, call a mediator. Obviously, uh, in many instances, you will have worked with a particular mediator on many occasions, but I just think it's always helpful to call the mediator um, and just, you know, start out by acquainting them a little bit with the matter, um, developing rapport, certainly if you haven't used them before. Um, but I, you know, personally, when I was litigating, I wouldn't have agreed to a mediator without, you know, knowing a lot about them. In many instances, I called them. Um, and do, do you also call people who've used them in the past? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a must. And, you know, these days on the plane of sand, of course, if you're a member of Cala, it's easy to go to their uh, um, database, uh, to their listserv, and, and find out a lot of information about mediators. Um, I think the defense less so. Um, so I think they, dis- they, they depend more on word of mouth. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there is such a wealth of information about us out there that I think if you go into a mediation having, you know, knowing nothing about the particular mediator other than the fact that, you know, the defense lawyer said, hey, my, my carrier likes this person, and you're thinking on the plaintiff's end, well, okay, then they're going to listen to the mediator, so I'll go along with them. Uh, that's a rule of thumb, but I think it's a starting point, certainly not an end point. And you bring up something very interesting because uh, it used to be, at least when we, when you and I first started out, where there was a knee-jerk reaction. Well, the other side suggested the mediator, so I don't want him or her. Um, that's changed, hasn't it? Very much so. Um, and uh, again, I think the, the feeling is that if, particularly on the defense side, if, if they like a particular mediator, from the plaintiff's perspective, the feeling is that you're more likely in that situation uh, if you can persuade the mediator as to the merits of your position, that that mediator is going to be persuasive with the other side. Uh, I think also, you know, certain certain claims people are comfortable with certain uh, certain uh, mediators, 
Um, and I think it's always a good idea to keep the person with the money happy. So <laughs> that's another instance where I think you, you, you can look at it that way. Well, it, it's refreshing to know that, that sometimes claims people will listen to other people. Um, but there, there are times, at least that I've seen, where um, listening to the mediator um, might be possible. L- listening to their own counsel might also uh, uh, not always be possible. Well, I'm, I'm surprised and somewhat dismayed these days that uh, defense lawyers in many instances uh, are not only not listened to, they don't even know what the authority is going in. You know, when I was litigating, it was much more a collaborative process between when I was doing defense work between me and the, and the claims people. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case as much today. Right, right. Well, we are going to be taking a break right now, and uh, we're talking with Alan Saylor on Masters of Dispute Resolution on PodClips.io. When we come back, we are going to be talking about the expectations that parties bring to a mediation uh, about certain things. We'll be right back. Masters of Dispute Resolution would like to thank ADR Services Incorporated, your partner in resolution, and its founder, Lucy Barron, for supporting this podcast. ADR Services is one of the leading providers of alternative dispute resolution in California. Leveraging technology to drive resolution, ADR Services is committed to dynamism in the face of growing client need and an ever-evolving legal climate. Now operating offices in all major legal markets of California, ADR Services provides unparalleled in-person and remote resolution services through its exclusive panel, comprised of more than 130 of the most distinguished and talented neutrals across the state, capable of handling challenging and complex mediations, arbitration, and other procedures in every field of law. When you seek the services of a neutral and you want results and satisfied clients, contact ADR Services, www.adrservices.com. I'm chatting with Alan Saylor. Uh, Alan is uh, providing his insights uh, on the conduct of mediation. And one of the things that, that we're about to discuss is Parties come to the mediation with certain expectations. Uh, it may be degrees of optimism about resolution and whether resolution can be reached. They may also have some other expectations, uh, maybe about what preparation the mediator requires to effectively, uh, effectively mediate the case. So one of the most common things that I've heard is that the mediator needs to be able to handle difficult people, uh, usually the other part, okay? Uh, you've run into that, Alan. Uh, can you give me an idea as to, as to how you a- approach uh, the, the handling of difficult people? Well, there's no one way in which to do that. I mean, it's it's kind of a case by case basis. And, and uh, I've had people that, uh, you know, have changed on a dime. Um, so you thought you're getting along well with them, and then it and then it goes goes south or vice versa. So I you know I think that uh, if we're talking about claims people and lawyers, um, I think one thing that helps me is that people who come before me appreciate the amount of time and preparation I put into a matter beforehand. So I want people to appreciate the fact that I treat their case, uh, you know as it's my only case. Um, and so they know they're getting value for the money they're spending. 
Um, and uh, so I, I think from that respect, um, getting the respect of, of, of lawyers and claims people is important. Um, again, I think this comes from the fact that I also talk to lawyers ahead of time. I email lawyers ahead of time. Um, and uh, sometimes they don't like my emails. <laughs> we'll get into it that way. Um, but I'd rather have that happen before a session than during a session. Um, so if I'm having a, a, you know, a spirited debate with a lawyer, uh, I'd rather have that ahead of time outside the presence of a claims person so that when we're actually mediating, uh, yeah, I always want to have the lawyers back. I never want to do anything that could potentially embarrass the lawyer. Um, I remember years ago I was mediating a case and uh, a lawyer on the defense end was, was doing a very poor job. All of a sudden he came up with a really, really clever argument um, to which I responded, uh, um, boy, that's a great argument. Tell me the special instruction you're going to give. By the way, this was a week before trial. Tell me the special instruction you were going to give. And it was obvious that he didn't have one. Mm -hmm. And the, and the uh, personal counsel for the, uh, <laughs> for the client uh, said, you don't have the jury instructions done and we're going to trial in a, in a week. So as I said, that was a very long time ago. And you know, you, you, you gotta be careful not to be in that situation. Right. So right. I, I've dealt with that over the years by making sure I'm doing a lot of pre-convening and getting the comfort level between myself and the lawyers that are going to be appearing before me. So, so you set, you help them set the expectation before coming into the session. Uh, by having a conversation about what they can expect. It is amazing what you can learn before a session starts by doing this. Also, it, it is much more likely you're going to have a successful mediation uh, if you pre-convene because, you know, I've had situations where it's become obvious to me, this mediation, we're not, this is not a time to be having it. We need to do X, Y, and Z beforehand, and I've continued the matter. Um, either because somebody wasn't going to be available or it just hadn't uh, uh, you know, been roundtabled uh, or the plaintiff's counsel hasn't provided the defense with the information they need. So these are all things that can be handled before the session uh, rather than during the session because if they're happening during the session, oftentimes that means we're having a second session, which I right. at least try to avoid. Right. Alan, also, one of the things that, that I, I would like you to get into a little bit is you know, there are some mediators who say, look, send me some summaries of what the medical records show or send me, uh, give me some bottom lines about, about this. That's not your approach, is it? Well, okay. So first of all, I'm an independent practitioner. I've got my own practice. So mm -hmm. I can limit the number of cases I handle mm -hmm. and I can uh, calendar them in a way that I have sufficient time to prepare. So it is not unusual for me in certain instances to spend five, six hours preparing for a session, which means I'm going through every medical record. Um, I'm reading depositions sometimes. I'm, I'm looking at video. I, I'm doing a lot. Now, I get nuggets from that that I can oftentimes use during the course of the mediation to help me get a case settled. Um, that's my practice. Um, you know, most mediators are mediating a lot more cases than I are than I am, um, and they just don't have the luxury of time that I have. I choose my practice. You know, I as an independent, I can choose to practice the way I want. Um, and if I were doing, you know, seven, eight, ten cases a week, there's no way I can bring the level of preparation uh, to the table that I do. Now, uh, having said that, 
I think it's very important for any mediator, you want them to get them a, a, a comprehensive brief. Um, if somebody's had surgery, get them the operative report. Um, you know, I, I think those kinds of things, you don't have to hit them, don't hit them with, uh, you know, volumes of medical records, but take out the key records and let them see that. Right. Um, and do it in a fashion that's easy for the mediator to, to, to do. Also, don't don't get a mediation brief to the mediator the day before if you can avoid it. Yeah, I've experienced that. Uh, one one in particular, I think I received. Uh, it was a thirty-page brief uh, with uh, a total of ninety-four pages, if I recall correctly. And I got it at ten o'clock before the night before the the mediation. It's like what. What am I supposed to do with that? Yeah, I, I've, I've gotten briefs 10 minutes before a mediation and seven inches is. Now, again, because I do the level of preparation I do, that doesn't mm -hmm. become a problem for me in most instances. But that's not going to be the case with many mediators. Right. Right. Well, the, the sometimes, too, uh, you know, when, when you do that level of preparation and people know you've done that level of preparation, that adds to your credibility when you say, you know, my impression is not what you're saying. Yes, I had that happen to me a, a couple of days ago. Right. Um, but um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it adds to credibility. Also, it, it's um, it's a time saver because I don't come into a mediation and spend two hours getting prepped on, you know, getting briefed on the case. I, I launch right in because I know right. the case backwards and forwards. So. You know, my preparation time saves session time. I have right. situations where, you know, I'll, I'll do six hours of prep and we'll do a three-hour mediation um, and get the case settled. So. Right. That, that, that brings to mind a, a quote I think you, you told me about uh, concerning the length of a speech, uh, but I think it's applicable here. You yeah, remember the, the, Daniel, the Daniel Webster quote is what I think. Yes. Daniel Webster, a great statesman in the 19th century, was asked at, at one point to, to, I think, give a commencement speech or speech in some fashion. And he asked the person who was requesting he give a speech as to how much time the speech would, would need to be. And the uh, person said, well, why do you need to know that? He said, well, if you want me to speak for an hour, I need five minutes of preparation. If you want me to speak for five minutes, I need an hour of preparation. So, you know. Basically, it, it tells you if you're going to wing it, you probably don't need much time. But uh, um, you know, it's if you're going to go on forever. But you know, if you're going to if you've got a short period of time, you want to be very very prepared. Well, th this that that is a good a, a good quote to break on for for the moment. Uh, we are on PodClips.io. This is Masters of Dispute Resolution, and I'm Len Levy. Our guest is Alan Saylor. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about expectations concerning the time it might take to reach resolution. Masters of Dispute Resolution is sponsored by the National Academy of Distinguished Neutrals. NADN is the premier invitation-only association of civil mediators and arbitrators in the United States, with members in every state of the nation. Only experienced ADR professionals who are widely acceptable to local plaintiff and defense firms are invited to join the Academy's roster. The Academy's website, nadn.org, is the most widely visited neutrals database in the world today. With over 40,000 law offices, insurance companies, and corporations visiting our free website annually. Firms can search for neutrals by many criteria, including location, 
case expertise, qualifications, language skills, and most NADN members also publish their available dates, calendars, online, making NADN.org the go-to website for law firms wishing to schedule appointments online with their preferred mediators. For more information, please visit www.nadn.org today. Welcome back to Masters of Dispute Resolution on podclips.io. This is Len Levy, and we're chatting with Alan Saylor. Um, Part of what we were talking about are the expectations of parties. And one of the expectations that that I've seen parties uh, have going into a mediation, uh, or at least as expressed initially before I talk to them, uh, is expectations regarding the time that it takes to reach a resolution. Um, you know, I'll hear things like, uh, we need uh, to be able to tell if they're serious about settling this case in the mediation session and and uh, we should be able to know that within the first 30 minutes. Any comments, Alan? Okay. Well, we always know that the length of a mediation is a two point two plus two mathematical formula, right? Because every right. mediation is the same time frame. Um, again, this is where pre-convening helps me. Um, you know, I've had cases where I've determined they're just not right for mediation or really shouldn't be mediated. That doesn't happen much, but um, you know, as far as the expectations go, um, you know, I've had cases that were huge cases and they settled very quickly. Um, and I've had other cases that were relatively small cases and took all day or longer. So there's no rule of thumb as to how long something is going to take. Um, you know, one of the things that happens in a, in a mediation oftentimes is you're waiting around for the person uh, that you need to contact to get the settlement authority. Um, and that could be a problem for any number of reasons in turning timing. So um, I've had sessions where we wait around for somebody for you know 90 minutes or two hours to, to come back to us with the, with the authority we need. That happens uh, once in a while. Um, so there's really no no way to know. I it's interesting. Zoom has really changed the playing field from this standpoint. Um, when I'm mediating now, I'm typically meeting the client um, and and spending some time with them, uh, getting to know them. You know, we talk about the case, whatever it is. But relatively quickly, we're done with the client. Um, and the, uh, most of the mediation then takes place out of the presence of the client. Now, when you're in a conference room with that client, that can be dicey. You know, you gotta go out of the room or the client's gotta go out of the room or whatever. On Zoom, it's great because the clients are all too happy <laughs> to say, oh, you don't need me? You mean I can do what I want here in my home? I can turn the camera off and I can turn the audio off and I just have to wait for a call from you as to when I either need to get on the phone and go back on the Zoom and it's like, yes. There are most of the time in my experience of the hundreds of mediations I've had on Zoom, uh, they love it. Um, they love to be in that situation. So we're not seeing that uh, being a problem as much as it used to be. But. Right. Well, you, you bring up something else, uh, which is having people in authority, uh, you know, having the right people in the room is a very, very important uh, aspect. I mean, it may be also having the wrong person in the room might impede it. So can you give a few comments about that? Well, are you talking about plaintiffs? I'm talking about plaintiffs. I'm talking about defendants uh, so let's sometimes. Start with, let's start with the plaintiff. I typically 
uh, do not negotiate with the plaintiff present. Mm. Now, obviously, if the counsel tells me otherwise, then you know it's their their show. So if the counsel says no, I want offers and demands being exchanged in the client's presence. That's fine. I'm not going to debate that. That's the it's the lawyer's call as to what he wants to do or she wants to do. But typically. Um, you don't want to be discussing offers and demands in front of a, a, a client, uh, particularly in a personal injury matter. Um, and I'm assuming here we don't have a very sophisticated client. Um, you know, obviously, if the a plaintiff is a lawyer, you're probably right. not going to do that. But what I find is if you start talking numbers, particularly early on in front of plaintiffs, you know, the demand is a million six. Okay, mm-hmm. and the first offer is one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. Well, the million six now they've heard. Uh, if they're unsophisticated, they're starting to think, well, maybe my case is worth that. Uh, you come in with 125, maybe they're offended by that number because it's so low compared to where the case might settle. So, um, you know, at some point, obviously, you've got to get the client involved with the negotiations, but I think that should be later uh, uh, rather than sooner. Now, that means the plaintiff's attorney has to talk to the plaintiff ahead of time and get some range in which they feel that the case can be settled. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I just don't think uh, having the plaintiff watch the sausage is a good idea. Right. Uh, how it's made. Um, on the on the defense end, um, you know, there are many instances in which I want to talk to the lawyer. Um, you know, just the lawyer and I. Um, obviously, pre-session that's easy to do. Um, but I had a case recently um, with um, a, a client that really wanted to settle the case, but it was the carrier's call as to whether it was going to settle. There was going to be a lot of publicity involved if the case didn't settle. And, and the lawyer contacted me ahead of time and said, look, there are going to be places during the day where you're going to want to talk to me or I'm going to want to talk to you. Now, Zoom lends itself to this beautifully. Uh, but we were communicating at, at certain points, just as she and I, uh, during the course of the negotiations. Um, and that was, you know, that was taking place. Um, the case settled and it ultimately settled for a number that both the carrier and the, and the, and the defense lawyer were very happy with and the plaintiff's attorney was very happy too. Right. Uh, that's one of the remarkable things. I know you found this too. You have, you have situations where you, uh, you get finished with a mediation and the plaintiff's attorney comes up to you and says, that was remarkable. I cannot believe you, you were able to sell this case for that much money. Right. And then the defense lawyer or the claims person comes up to you and says, well, I, that was a remarkable uh, instance of, of, of uh, mediation skill because we can't believe you settled this case as low as you did. Right. <laughs> and it's like, you know, you have that. Uh, and it's kind of interesting when that happens. But. Well, when you talk about win-win, uh, that's, that certainly exemplifies yeah. that. Yeah. Um, w- one of the things in terms of having uh, the right p- or the wrong person in the room, I- I've had mediation sessions where uh, the aunt or something like that is in the room and going, no, nah, no, my neighbor got more than that. And, you know, that type of thing. Right. So, well, I'm uh, going to tell you a story that very recently happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm mediating a case. We're negotiating it. Uh, the case is going to settle. Uh, the numbers are reasonably close. Um, we've been going back and forth, and uh, all of a sudden, the plaintiff's attorney says to me, um, "I got to go talk to the clients now," which is, you know, fine. I assume that was going to happen, and I assume he had client control because he told me he had. So about ten minutes later, he comes back and says to me, "We have a problem." I said, "What's that?" He said, "They have somebody advising them what to do, and they're not listening to me." And I said, "Well, who is it?" And he said, "Well, I think it's a paralegal." 
some you know somebody they know that they're very close with. So I said, well, okay, we got to go find out who that is. So he goes, he comes back onto the Zoom, and now this other character appears, who's the the caddy from from Seinfeld, from the, <laughs> the Kramer's caddy, if you will. And it turns out she is a claims person with 25 years of experience with a particular carrier. Um, and she's there explaining to the clients why they're going to settle the case for too little money. Um, well, without getting too much into the story, suffice it to say that it turned out that the defendant's carrier was the same carrier this woman worked for. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So talk about wow. having the wrong person in the room. And I did some really significant tap dancing on that, on the, in that matter. Right, uh, right. Well, the having the tools to tap dance uh, is something that, that comes in handy from time to time. Uh, we're going to take a break now. And uh, we are talking with Alan Saylor. This is uh, Masters of Dispute Resolution on podclips.io. And we'll be back momentarily. Most attorneys need professional liability coverage, but very few are professional liability experts. And there's so many options when it comes to legal malpractice insurance. How do you know how much coverage you need? What should your policy limits be? What if you've had a past claim? You shouldn't have to take time away from helping your clients to research professional liability coverage. And with lawyer-specific insurance brokerage on your side, you won't have to. They're professional liability experts, shop California's leading professional liability carriers to find your firm the right coverage at the right price. Lawyer-specific founders Alan Debbie Hernandez have over 50 years combined experience working with the highest-rated providers of lawyers' professional liability insurance. So trust the brokerage with access to over 40 carriers in California and find a cost-effective malpractice insurance solution for your firm. Go to lawyerspecific.com and click Request a Quote. Welcome back, everyone, to Masters of Dispute Resolution. And uh, I am talking with Alan Saylor. I'm Lynn Levy. Um, one of the things that we haven't gotten into yet, we've been talking about mediators uh, and the party's, ex, uh, the party's expectations of mediators. What should a mediator expect a party or, or the party's attorney uh, to do? Well, I think, first of all, you got to keep in mind, you're working for them, not the other way around. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm not a judge. I never wanted to be. Um, so I didn't command the courtroom. I think some judges kind of bring their mentality from the bench into mediation. You know, personally, why I think in many instances lawyers are better mediators than judges. But um, although there are some very, very fine judges out there who are phenomenal mediators, um, so you know, again, from the standpoint of what I expect, um, I know what I need to help me help the parties get a case resolved. Um, but having said that, you always have to keep in mind as a mediator that you work for the parties who hire you. So right. you know, my wife, for example, gets frustrated sometimes because I'm up late working the night before a mediation looking at briefs that I've just gotten. Right. She said to me many times, you have to tell these lawyers that if they don't get you a brief in time, you're not going to read it. <laughs> It sounds like we're married to the same woman, uh, Alan. Yeah, so I I then have to remind her how handsomely we are compensated for what we do um, (laughs) and that I don't tell clients what they have to do. They tell me what they want me to do. Um, I can tell a a lawyer, look, it's going to be, I'm going to do a much better job on your case if you get me something ahead of time or if I have this or that. 
Um, but I've never viewed my role as getting on the phone with a lawyer or certainly a claims person uh, and telling them, look, this is what you have to do. I mean, it, particularly with respect to the person with the money, the worst thing you can do is tell the person with the money what they have to do. But, um, but one thing you can tell them is, look, this is really what, what I need you to do before the mediation if for, for me to be as effective as you want me to be. Uh, yeah, I think that's how you handle it. You, you basically call them. I, I've got a case tomorrow, and I called up. I said, look, I, I understand this videotape. I'd like to see it. I understand there's a defense medical examination report, records review report. I want to get that. Um, now I'm doing that you know, a week or two ahead of time. One of the things that I do is you may not get a brief until the day before, but if it's a personal injury case, for example, that doesn't mean you can't get a lot of stuff to help you prepare. So I'm getting the records, the defense medical exam report, photographs, collision reports, all of these things I get in advance because from the attorney standpoint, they're really busy. I have instances where I, I'll send an email to the defense lawyer and say, listen, I don't need a brief from you. If there's anything you want to tell me, just send me an email with it um, because I'm trying to save them time. Right. Uh, you know, they're handling incredible number of files. On the plaintiff's end, same thing. So if I can save them a lot of time, they appreciate that, I think. Um, and, and that's one of the things I do. But, um, you know, you don't have to wait for briefs. Uh, you can get the evidence ahead of time, and, and obviously the brief makes it easier. Uh, right. But I do the legwork, so. Right. Well, as, as I've said before, the amount of preparation you do is, is an incredible amount. And the, the idea that, that attorneys can help you though, is, is something that you actually addressed in an article you wrote uh, in September of 2021 in The, in the Advocate, right? Um, essentially, uh, you know, make, make it easy for the mediator to digest your client's industry, uh, injuries and medical treatment. I mean, essentially, don't you want to do that in a personal injury case? So I, I have a brief that I received from the defense yesterday mm -hmm. and did a very good job of summarizing the medical, summarizing the medical records, except he did it by provider. So I'm going back and forth and back and forth. So I sent him an email this morning. I said, listen, the next time you do a brief and you want to discuss medical treatment, do it chronologically. Um, you know, don't, uh, you don't want to be talking about uh, a surgery, you know, a surgery, and then you're talking about epidural injections. You want to do it the other way around because that's the way it happened. Right. So, you know, so I think that's something. Um, one of the things that frustrates me is just a pet peeve of mine. I'll get a brief and there are two parties and the first part of the brief is they're identifying who the who the party who the lawyers are and who they represent then they'll start out with something to the honorable mediator or whatever like they're writing a brief for the court you know launch in if you're doing a brief and again this is the old daniel webster you know uh, comment or you know we were kids doing book reports and we would copy out of the encyclopedia britannica you know 25 pages on chili um you know I, I, Give me what I need, and it doesn't have to be pretty. You got a slip and fall case, um, and there's notice. Don't bother with the law. <laughs> Just tell me there's notice and why. Right. Um, you know, don't tell me in an auto case where it's a rear ender what the basic speed law is. Don't spend time on that. Right. I get briefs where there's ten pages on the on the liability aspect of the case, which really doesn't matter because either an admitted or practically admitted liability case, and then I get three pages on the damages. Right. That's what's going to get you the money. Right. <laughs> so, Right. And, and let me ask you this, too, because this is this is something that that kind of it, I won't say it's a pet peeve, but it's something that I, I'm, I'm really curious about. 
why do you why do parties make their briefs confidential aren't you trying to aren't you trying to persuade the other side to come closer to what how you view the case so uh can you comment on that confidential not confidential how do you do it so, so on the plaintiff's side um your goal is to persuade the decision maker whether it be a claims adjuster or somebody else to pay you money in many instances a lot of money i think it's a good idea to tell them why they should do that the vehicle for doing that is a brief right. so i think it is very important to send a brief to the other side you know to the defense side well in advance of the mediation and basically you know give reasons to the person who's making the decision as to why they should pay you um, if you withhold information um, that's truly not confidential you're not serving that purpose on the defense end again um, I get some splendid briefs very very persuasive send them to the plaintiff's lawyer now if there's something in the you know something you know that you tactically don't want to give away you know, if, there's, if there's a you've got a doctor who's going to say something and you don't want the plaintiff to know that at that point in time okay I get that so redact it but I think the more information the parties have, the counsel have, the claims people have in a mediation, the more likely the case is going to settle. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I knowledge is, is key. And so nothing, there's nothing claims people hate more than finding out at a mediation things that they didn't know before that they should have known and they're going to affect uh, value, affect their ability to get money. And it just sets a terrible tone. Um, yeah, and and what I what I found too is that that a lot of times you'll get the the information such that you'll have a claims person say, well, if I'd have known this a week ago, I, I would have been able to talk to some other people, and and now I now I have to go back and we have to roundtable it and all that kind of stuff. Right. The other thing that I hear is from plaintiffs' lawyers, well, yeah, they they could have subpoenaed the records. And it's like, yeah, they could have, but they didn't. And if there's information in those records that really help you get money, why are you hiding it? <laughs> you know? So, you know, I just I just think on the plaintiff's end, help help the defense lawyer and help the claims person get you the money you want. Right. Well, Alan, th this has been a, a very, very enjoyable discussion. I mean, it's uh, uh, it, it, it was about as enjoyable as the, the lunch we had over pizza the other day. But uh, um, but uh, too bad we can't supply pizza to our, our audience via the, uh, via the internet. But we are going to wrap up right now. And, and I, I really appreciate your, your being here. Uh, Alan, uh, how can people best contact you? Uh, the best way to contact me is to go to my website, which is alansailor.com. Um, on that website, you will find a calendar page. You can actually go to that calendar page, determine my current availability, and also you can book online using that calendar calendar page. Uh, cuts out a heck of a lot of phone calls and emails in terms of scheduling. Well, thank you. Thank you again. Uh, thank you, Daryl Wayne Engineer, and I'm Lynn Levy. This is Masters of Dispute Resolution on podclips.io. Powered by Infogen Labs, Inc. I uh, am really pleased to have had Alan as my guest. Uh, and in the meantime, stay well, keep listening, and remember, 
peace of mind is enhanced when conflicts are resolved. If you wish to contact Len Levy, you can reach him through his email at lslevy at advservices.com, through Len's website, lenlevymediate.com, telephone him at 818-903-5562, or contact his case manager at ADR Services, 213-683-1600.